All right, welcome to Strong Words with Ian Strong, the entertaining entertainment podcast. I'm your host, Ian Strong, and today I got Brad Gilmore returning to the show to talk about all the things he's been doing in the world of entertainment. In the last 15 months or so since the last time he was here back in November of 2020, Brad has continued to be one of the busiest guys in all of entertainment. And we talk about all the things that he's been up to, including continuing to host the very popular and successful Back to the Future, the podcast, where he's had the chance to talk to co-creator Bob Gale, as well as some of the actors from the trilogy, including Leah Thompson and Christopher Lloyd, which I asked Brad about what it's like to speak to Doc Brown himself, as well as the re-release of his book Back from the Future in paperback, which includes an additional bonus chapter. We also talk about his Hall of Fame podcast, which he co-hosts with two-time WWE Hall of Famer Booker T and their 10-year relationship that also includes his work with Booker T's Reality of Wrestling promotion in Texas. We also talk about his work as a contestant and as a host of the show Movie Trivia Schmodown, which led to him starting another podcast, which is available right now, and writing a new book, which is available tomorrow, about all the James Bond films, which we'll discuss in details from the actors who played the iconic role, the great Bond girls, the great music, the great video games, and a whole lot more. It's truly inspiring to me to get to talk to Brad again, simply because of just how much respect I have for his work ethic and his hustle. And after the interview, I'll tell you where you can find all the things that we talk about here on the show today. So let's form a bond, James Bond with Brad Gilmore by transitioning into the interview with some music that I personally recorded myself, like I do every episode here on Strong Words with Ian Strong. Hey, Brad. What's going on, Ian? Uh, not much. Well, actually, a whole lot. I mean, well, not compared to you, of course, but, uh, you know, a good bit. How you been? I've been good, dude. I've been good, you know, staying busy. I can't believe when I saw that thing, it's been, what, a year and some change. Yeah, coming up. Since on, we last spoke. About a year and a quarter, yeah. And I was actually going to ask you how you've been since the last time I saw you, but I pretty much know the answer to that, and that's just crazy busy. I've been slightly busy. That's yeah. true. I've been slightly busy as normal. But man, I don't know what it is. I just can't sit still. I think it goes back to uh, just being one of those hyperactive youths when I was a kid. Like I always wanted to do seven things at once for whatever reason. <laughs> well, of all those things that you are doing, it's amazing to me not only like I, I respect the hustle but also the quality of the entertainment that you're putting out there is just admirable to me. Like I, I, I keep up with you on social media, which is hard enough as it is because of so many things that you have going on. And just to give everybody listening kind of a little, a little rundown, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about all the stuff that I want to talk to you about in regards to what you have going on now. But since we've last spoke in that year plus time, I mean, first of all, you got engaged, which congratulations. I'm super happy uh, for you, you. And, and your bride-to-be. I, I know I told you that personally, but I wanted to say it here on record mm -hmm. so that I sound like a good person. 
And yeah, you're a great individual. You're a great. <laughs> everyone should know that Ian is a quality human being and did reach out directly, which I appreciate. I did. You that is like true. The picture. I, I did. I did you know on your I mean? birthday as, or on your birthday as well. Yes. 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 Look at you. See. Look at you. <laughs> yeah, I got I got to take care of my strong words alums because there's we're we're a quality group of people. <laughs> hey, it's only the best. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. get, being accepted into Harvard. Yeah, if it's you've been on the strong words podcast. It's basically the greatest collection of people that you would want to be a part of. It's like it's you and it's Shark Boy and it's DDP and it's all my friends. <laughs> Is Diamond Dallas Page not one of the great interviews of our time? Oh my god. I mean I wish I, I mean, had look, more I'll time. The, I'll tell oh. I'm just going to say, I wish I had more time to talk. I've had a couple of private conversations with him, but the conversation that I had here on my show was so transcending. I mean, you, you literally can feel the positivity radiate through your body at, almost via osmosis as he talks to you. 100%. You know, I... Um... When I started doing some podcasting stuff, um, you know, way back in the day, like I started a podcast, it was probably 2012 when I started my actual first podcast that I ever worked on. Uh, so now we're looking at a decade just in podcasting and I don't even know how, I really can't honestly remember how it even happened, <laughs> but somehow or another, I got in contact with Diamond Dallas Page's people mm -hmm. and this was probably, I was maybe four or five weeks into the wrestling business in general and uh, or maybe not even yet i can't remember the timeline maybe i wasn't even involved but somehow i got diamond dallas pages people and he came on the podcast i literally maybe had five listeners at the time <laughs> and he came on the show he was incredible i mean he tells the story about arthur the guy that he uh mm -hmm. guy that went out to ddp was a disabled veteran and and it was so inspiring. And I was like, at the end, I said, man, thank you so much. He goes, oh, you know, anytime, anytime, right? And then I guess he enjoyed our conversation so much. And remind you, he doesn't know me from Adam. Mm -hmm. And he enjoyed our conversation so much that his publicist reached out and said, hey, Dallas says he wants to talk to you at least once a month on your show. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, wow. So we set it up. And for several months, Dallas Page would come on the show we talk about DDP yoga. We talk about his career. Uh, he gave me several copies of what was then called DDP yoga on DVD. Mm -hmm, by which the way. I still have. <laughs> on, thank you. We're with some of the OGs who have the DVDs. <laughs> he like gave me a bunch of them to give away on the show. He was just so gracious for yeah. no reason. He literally did not know me. And yeah. then he came down to reality of wrestling it was like 2015, so this is like three years of talking to him on the phone. We had never met each other. We finally met. It was great. And I just remember going to bed that night, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, I got a text from DDP. And he was like, hey, bro, call me. This is at 3 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> right? So I pick up my phone, and I call him. He's like, hey, Brad, just want to ask, man, if it's, if it's, if it's too big of a deal – it's okay. I just wanted to ask you any way you could pick me up tomorrow. I'm going to take me to the airport. And I was like, yeah, Dallas page. I can pick you up and take you to the airport. It's like, what, you know, what time do you need me? He goes, well, you know, my flights at like two, he goes, but I want to get some breakfast and a couple of other things. So, you know, maybe pick me up at like seven, seven 30. I was like, Jesus, this guy gets the most out of his day. So I picked Dallas page up at his, uh, at his hotel which is by George Bush Intercontinental Airport in Houston, which is our main airport. Mm 
mm-hmm. and he was flying out of the smaller one, Hobby. So I pick him up, and on the way to his to the airport, he's like, "Hey, I want to stop at Whole Foods." So we stop at Whole Foods, and this guy is power walking through Whole Foods, like something I've never seen before. He was a man on a mission. And he bought all this stuff. And then I finally asked him, I'm like, so you're just going to take this on the plane with you, these groceries? He has all my st- you know, stuff in my bag. He goes, I'm flying to go meet this guy who I talked to online who's overweight and is on his deathbed. And I'm going to show him how to cook, how to eat, and how to exercise. And that was what he was going to do. Wow. He was leaving here just to go help somebody else out. And I thought, there are very few quality individuals in the world but there are even fewer people like Diamond Dallas Page. Absolutely, 100%. and I, I can only sing that guy's praises. Yeah, I I had the opportunity to meet him in Atlanta. I told that story uh, to Dallas here on the show, and I told that story here on my show in a separate uh, segment. And it was only a couple of months after my wife had passed away, and I was not in a very good place physically. I was not in a good place mentally. And I was in town in Atlanta because I'm a big Braves fan. Uh, sorry about the Astros. Not sorry about the Astros this past uh, World yeah, Series, yeah, by whatever. the way. <laughs> but I, I went down to uh, – and I reached out to him because I was doing DDPY and had success with it and kind of fell off after my wife had passed. And he invited me to the DDPY Performance Center in Smyrna, which is right outside of Atlanta. And he was doing an open house there that day. And despite the fact that there were probably 50 people in the room – waiting to get his attention. We stood in the middle of that room and he gave me his full attention for like 45 straight minutes. And we just had a conversation about what I need to do to change my life mentally so that I can get back to changing my life physically. And it's, I I can't sing his praises enough either, especially knowing how infectious his attitude and his mindset is just talking about him, like makes me motivated to, you know, I'm not that I'm going to hang up with you right now, but like, I'm probably going to work out right after this. Yeah, I know. I feel like I feel like I got to do something. <laughs> I got to do something with my time other than just sit and talk to people. But um, but it's also, you know, sitting and talking to people is also one of those great things for your mental health. Absolutely. You know, I, I think that I'm glad that we're living sometimes. Sometimes I'm not. But most of the time, I'm glad that we're living in the time that we are, because mental health isn't this taboo subject anymore that you mm-hmm. kind of kept hidden, which is funny. For some reason, mental health, when you like. 20 years ago or 15 years ago it was a lot like being a wrestling fan you like didn't tell anybody about it it's like i watch this by myself this is something i do alone it's a guilty pleasure uh, <laughs> it's a guilty pleasure and i like that we're able to, to openly talk about mental health because i think that everybody to some degree or another has some sort of anxiety or something mm-hmm. that gets them down or stress whether it's of the of your current job over it's where where am i going next what am i doing with my life and um, those are real fears, and it's it's nice to hear that other people go through that too. And Absolutely. that's really the power of a conversation. I I literally just had a conversation last month here on the show with a friend of mine who hosts a mental health podcast because in my four plus years of being in therapy and my two plus years of having this show, I've been doing as much as I could to try to end the stigma surrounding the discussion of mental health awareness because I used to be that person. I used to contribute to all the negative stigmas surrounding mental health. I've talked about Mm -hmm. that here on the show as well. And I understand the importance of not only highlighting and focusing and and understanding it, but also continuing the conversation with other people. Because as I said in the episode last month with my friend Dom, it's so easy to forget 
that other people are suffering through stuff too because we're so wrapped up in what we're suffering from. And it's great that we can have these open discussions about how we think and how we feel and how it changes us. And and I think that being able to have these conversations now, going back to what you were saying about living in the time that we are living in now, it's almost as if like we're in an embarrassment of riches in regards to the access that we have to being able to have these conversations and get a better understanding of each other so that we can better navigate our own lives. Kind of like I said, you know, uh, last month with my guest, but as much as I would love to talk about DDP and, uh, and mental health, we, we have so much more to talk about. And, and I want to get to some of those things because since the last time you hear on the show, you are, have just been so busy. You're continuing to put out episodes of the back to the future, the podcast including interviews that you got to have with co-creator Bob Gale and with Doc Brown himself, Christopher Lloyd, which I listened to both those episodes. Fantastic. That not, not oh, only thanks, not, not only they super entertaining, but I was like super happy that you got the opportunity to do that because I know that especially Christopher Lloyd was one of those dream guests that you told me that you, you wanted to have. And you got to talk, you got to talk to him, uh, your season premiere on Back to the Future Day. You had both guys on there and then you got to wrap up the season with Christopher Lloyd. How like tell me tell me about how that was for you to be able to talk to Doc Brown himself? Yeah, man, it was great. So they were doing this uh, the show on Discovery Plus called Expedition Back to the Future, and I knew when filming it because people, you know, when when you're known now as like a Back to the Future fan or author or podcaster, I'm, I'm not. I wouldn't call myself an expert or anything like that, but enthusiast. There's the word I was looking for. <laughs> when you notice a Back to the Future enthusiast people tag you and stuff all the time on social media, right? Oh, did sure. you see this? Did you hear this? Did you look at this? Right. And so I knew that they were filming this expedition back to the future. So I, um, I actually got in contact, I think with like the director of photography or something random. I sent him a book like, Hey, hope, hope everything goes well, whatever, whatever. And then when the show is about to premiere, I don't know what made me do it, but I had Jim Belushi on my show <laughs> when he was promoting his, uh, he had a show on Discovery. I think it was I think it was called Growing Belushi, is what I think it was called. But anyway, he had this show on Discovery. So I happened to have an email contact from someone from Discovery. So I just took the biggest swing and shot in the dark and said, Hey, I know y'all have got this expedition back to the future thing coming out. I would love to have Christopher Lloyd or anybody involved with it. Right. Mm -hmm. And a woman hit me back a few days later. It was like, hey, Brad, thanks for reaching out. I'll see what I can do. And then I was like, okay, well, that doesn't sound promising. <laughs> and then she came back and was like, hey, um, he's filming a movie, but I'm working with his publicist to arrange it. And I was like, oh, awesome. Here's the funny part. So we finally get it scheduled. And they say, hey, this is the only day and time that he has. And it was like a Tuesday at 2.30 in the afternoon or something like that. And it just so happened, I... Out of all the times and days in the world, I had a booking at that uh, at that time, <laughs> or like 30 minutes after that time. I was speaking at a high school. I was like, crap. You know, how am I going to get out of this? And I would feel guilty canceling all these people that I had like this this meeting, this booking with for months or whatever. Yeah, I know that so feeling. So I literally just packed, yeah, I packed up all my stuff. I brought it with me and I said, hey, I'm going to need to use an empty classroom for about 30 minutes. Right? And, you know, no questions asked. They're like, yeah, here. So I, I had to set up my podcasting thing and then have my laptop open and ready inside of an empty classroom at a high school in Houston waiting for Christopher Lloyd to call. 
And um, he pops up on my screen, and there it was. There was Doc. There was the guy who I've watched play this role umpteenth amount of times, watched him in all kinds of other things like Taxi and Clue mm-hmm. the Movie and The Page Master and Who Framed Roger Rabbit mm-hmm. and Angels in the Outfield, Camp Nowhere. <laughs> all these movies that I used to love watching as a kid and still watch to this day, there he was. And it is one of those things, even in the digital scape, you're like, wow, this is a real person. Mm-hmm. This is a real individual. And um, he was so nice, so gracious. And it was just cool to have the opportunity to tell him how much I appreciated him. And he and I both love Back to the Future 3 the most, <laughs> which is a rare thing. I thought that was the most interesting part of your conversation was to hear that from him. And like, go- and going back and watching the trilogy probably six, seven times since, if not more, since the last time we talked, I can see why he thinks that he likes three the best. Because his character's journey throughout that particular movie is way different than the other two movies. He gets to, oh, yes, he, gets absolutely. to he gets to do so much more stuff and so much so many more fun things that I can see from his point of view, playing that character, especially for the third time. Well, kind of the second time because they filmed the two and three back to back. But how fun that must have been for him and why he probably thinks so fondly of the third movie. Yeah, I mean, it was really Doc's story. Right. uh, More than anybody's. And and what's interesting is Marty McFly is the central character of all three movies, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he's what makes the action happen. But the first movie is really Crispin Glover's story. Right. It's really George's story. Mm Mm-hmm. And Marty's the catalyst in order to get George to conquer his fears. Mm-hmm. And by and by proxy, Marty then learns to conquer his fears and send his demo into the record companies and not be afraid of rejection. Right. The second movie is Marty's story. Right. You know, of, of him, again, getting over being called. Well, I guess that's kind of in the third movie. But the second movie is more centralized over Marty and what happens to him in the future and mm-hmm. how he changes at the the end of the whole trilogy you see he doesn't race douglas needles and hit the rolls royce right mm-hmm. and then the third movie is doc brown right it's doc not only dealing with being stuck in the past accepting the mistake of building the time machine and then having this crisis of con- uh, conscious wanting to stay true to his scientific beliefs but also willing to accept love in his life mm-hmm. even if it means altering the timeline right right it's a really beautiful idea that they based that third movie around. And it was also Crispin, uh, Chris, Christopher Lloyd's first on-screen kiss. And it was oh, with Mary Steenburgen. So it's like, yeah, it's not, it's not a that's, bad... That's not a bad... Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I mean? It's not yeah. like, well, let me not disparage anybody else. But he, he could it could have been bad for him. He could have had a bad mm-hmm. first kiss. You know yeah. what I mean? This was a great one. Well, speaking of Back to the Future, we talked about your book last time you were here, Back from the Future, which since the last time we talked, I've actually read and really, really enjoyed. There's so like, even though I consider myself, I wouldn't say an expert either, but I'm a bit of enthusiast myself. There's a lot of cool stuff in here that I didn't know prior to reading this book that I think that any, I don't even, could you even say that there's casual fans of this movie? There's like everybody, this is one of those universally loved movies. Yeah, but there, there's so much. There's yeah. So even cool if you don't, even if you've never seen it, you know what it is. Right. And you know the main characters. You know the DeLorean. Exactly. Yeah, it's one of those movies. There, and there's there's so many cool things in here, and I I was almost 
jealous that you were given the opportunity to write this book, but at the same time, it's it's recently been re-released in paperback with bonus mm-hmm. material. So, mm-hmm. so how did yeah. how did how did that come about? Did the did the publisher come to you and say that we want to re-release this and we want you to write additional material, or was this material that was written that was cut out of the final edition? How did that come about? Well, I will say this. So there were things in the book, and uh, maybe it's because I'm a perfectionist to some degree, but there are things in the book where I saw like small little punctuation errors and things like this that just drove me nuts with my OCD. Mm-hmm. And I actually talked to a uh, a friend of mine who's an author as well and or who've written a few books, and he was like, dude, no matter how many times you come through the manuscript, there's always going to be an error that you always overlook and your copy editor overlooks and everybody sees it. I mean, everybody forgets it until it's published, right? So I, I lived with that for a little bit, but um, they bothered me so much. So I just asked the publisher, I was like, hey, can I go and just fix these changes? So for the next print of the book, you know, when we run out of this print, for the next print, they'll be fixed. And they said, yeah, no problem. We do that all the time. So I just went in and fixed the little manuscript that I wanted, a couple of small changes of just move, you know, change this word out, put the comma here, take mm-hmm. that comma out. Then they ended up coming back to me. They said, hey, you know, would you actually like to re-release the book in paperback? And I said, oh, yeah, that would be great. And they said, well, could you add anything extra to it, like a new intro or get someone to write a foreword? And the idea that I had was, well, you know, since the book had come out, I talked to Leah Thompson. Mm -hmm. I talked to Crispin Glover, Mm -hmm. Don Fullerlove, Bob Gale, Christopher Lloyd. I talked to all these people who are in the movies or surrounding the movies and things of this nature. So I just decided, what if I took some of their most interesting answers from those interviews? And I wrote a chapter called The Time Capsule, where I literally have these real-time, in-the-moment interviews with people who were such integral parts of the franchise. And I put them in the book for people to read, and that's what we did with the paperback. And so the paperback came out with an, well, one additional chapter called The Time Capsule, and it features interviews with Chris Lloyd and Crispin Glover and Leah Thompson and Bob Gale. That's so cool. I, I genuinely enjoyed this book. I'm not just blowing smoke here. And I am really looking forward to reading the additional material based on the podcast uh, interviews that you got to have, which I'm super jealous that you got to talk to those people. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, especially Leah Thompson, because like 14-year-old me, oh my God. Oh man, dude! She called me a dreamboat on the air, and that was like a life, life <laughs> check. Check. You, I don't know. Do you like Seinfeld? Of course. Um. I don't, okay. You know the episode where George is like he learns to go out on the high notes, like yes. leave on the high note. Mm-hmm. Right? If I could have left on the high note in that conversation <laughs> when Leah Thompson called me a dreamboat, that would have been what I did. I'd be like, okay, I'm done. Night's over. I literally did that with my fiance last night. We were playing Wordle. And I got it on the second guess. Oh, wow. Right? And I said, all right, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> Never playing Good it night. again. Talk to you next year. <laughs> you know, so I felt so accomplished. That's awesome. That's so awesome. Yeah. I, uh, Sorry, I, I just got lost being in jealousy. Um, <laughs> uh, speaking of other things that I'm jealous about is how much work you get to do with two-time WWE Hall of Famer Booker T., as not only co-host of the Hall of Fame Wrestling Podcast, but also his reality of wrestling promotion for which you just celebrated, what was your ninth year with them? Yeah, man, nine years. That's crazy. Yeah, I'm going into year 10 now, and literally, 
look, the internet has its drawbacks, especially social media. Sure. But if it wasn't for Twitter, I would have never gotten, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. If it wasn't for Twitter, I wouldn't be talking to you right now because <laughs> that's how I found out that there was an opening at Booker's school for hmm. an announcer it was through Twitter. And I just sent an email. And now 10 years, I'm in November, this November, maybe 10 years that I've been with Book and it still never, <laughs> ever gets old. I can't imagine what it must be like to be with that guy as much as you're with that guy because he is a constant source of information and entertainment that seemingly never ends. I mean, even even so much as like a lot of the stuff that he says on the podcast, I don't want to say they're controversial, but they're definitely scrutinized and even subject to debate. Has, has there ever been something that he said that you may take, you may have taken as like a hot take that you're like, oh, I'm not so sure about that book? Well, here's the thing. Uh, yes, plenty of times where he says something and I'm like, uh, I don't know about that. But here's the crazy thing. And people are going to be like, oh, you're just saying that, but I'm not. He normally, and I'm not saying 100%, but like nine, eight and a half to nine times out of 10, the crazy take that he has four months later proves to be true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he'll say something wild. Like, I mean, like one that he got a lot of heat on recently was about um, CM Punk's comeback promo, mm -hmm. right? He said something like, it missed the ball for me. Now, as a wrestling fan, when CM Punk came back, I was like, this is incredible. It was. It felt like a big moment to me. Yeah. And I really didn't care what he said on the microphone. But after a few months go by and you listened back to what Booker said, I was like, oh, you know what? Like, I totally see where he was coming from. So there's a lot of those things that happen. And the thing is this, too. I'd like to think with my now nine years of experience that I'm, I have at least some credibility to my opinion when I have one sure. in wrestling, right? But he's been in the game mm -hmm. since before I was born. <laughs> I mean, at the he's top. on 30, at the top. His first pay-per-view for WCW, he was in the main event. Mm -hmm. His first one ever with Sting and... Uh, who, who else? Someone else was in the match. I can't remember. It was a it was a war games match. That was the one where the Shockmaster was in and the British <laughs> Bulldog and all those people. Right. He's always been around on top, always had a significant role with every company that he's been a part of. Mm -hmm. And so his opinion and his views on things are not coming from a, a thing. They're not coming from a place of, oh, I just thought of this today and I'm saying it right now. This comes from a guy who has 30 plus years of experience and is making informed opinions based on right. his knowledge. And to the layman or to the fan, we might be like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, no, that's not what we think. But he's looking at it not from a fan's perspective. He's looking at it from an expert's perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's sometimes where the disconnect is. Well, and it's also, I mean, we've kind of fallen into this trap with wrestling pretty much since the launch of AEW in which you can't criticize one company without being typecast as pro one company, anti other company. Like you can't criticize AEW, like especially in Booker's position, having the relationship with WWE as he's had. I mean, he's a two-time WWE Hall of Famer. But like you, he can't say anything, even if it's just an opinion or a criticism, even if it's constructive, 
about AEW without people just saying, oh, he's just pro-WWE, he's anti-AEW. It's it's almost like this, like, I don't want to get on the soapbox here, but, like, wrestling culture nowadays has almost become toxic in that people can't just enjoy the product for what it is. They it's It's like they crave the Monday Night War era so badly that they, they feel like they have to choose a side, and you really don't. Oh, no, you don't have to choose. I like AEW a lot, man. I mean, I'll be honest. A lot of the times, their product, as far as a presentation, the way they present their product, mm-hmm. appeals to me more than WWE. Mm-hmm. And I'm a WWE lifer. That's been the only show I really ever watched. I mean, I would check in with WCW, but by the time I really got into wrestling, WCW was on the down swing. Yeah, me too. And um, the next thing I knew, Booker was on my TV <laughs> uh, in WWF, right, and DDP. Mm-hmm. And then with TNA, I liked, but still, I've always been a WWE guy. But AEW, I just think they've done done so many things right with their quality of their presentation. Now, they've done some stuff that's definitely head-scratching, too. Absolutely, and when they, they do that, you have to call them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the barbed wire exploding deathmatch thing, like, oh, that kind of <laughs> didn't go over well. Uh, um, I think that I think it was good Punk, until that ending. Yeah, the ending was sucked. Yeah, um, I think that CM Punk's victory over Darby Allen actually hasn't aged well. True, in my opinion, hasn't aged well. What has Darby really been since then? Yeah, I don't think that uh, there have been there have been small things, but then I think they do so many things right. Mm-hmm. What they've done with MJF. MJF is the most watchable person in pro wrestling right now. Absolutely. Next to next to Brock Lesnar. He's the most watchable person in wrestling. I think Brock is just on this tremendous run. Everything that, maybe that, he, everything that he's doing right now is so freaking entertaining that it almost drives me nuts. I mean, coming out on a roll in a cowboy hat <laughs> for whatever reason. Telling Sami Zayn we're both good Canadians. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's gotten into Brock, but he's fantastic. It seems like he's genuinely having fun now. Like he's not. Mm-hmm. He's not just doing it for the paycheck. It seems like he's genuinely having fun, and it's showing in his performance. Yeah. And I, I agree. And, and you can and you can see that with a lot of the former WWE superstars that have I don't want to say jump ship but are now currently working with AEW. You can see how some of their perspectives have also changed and how they've re- rediscovered their passion for it, and it's showing in their performances as well. Uh, guys like Chris Jericho mm-hmm. has just found a way to consistently reinvent himself and find a way to be relevant, find a way to always entertain, have his finger on the pulse. He's never fallen off. Not once. Nope, not once. Not one time. And he is another one of those guys who's just, I'm fascinated by how he's done it. And really him and The Undertaker, I would say, are the two guys who found out how to reinvent themselves and stay relevant probably better than anybody in the history of the business. I would agree with that 100%. Because, you know, Jericho said it himself many, many times. You can take any iteration of his character over the last 20 years, and you wouldn't want to see that v- particular version today. And right. the way, and the, But he's been able to evolve it in order to stay relevant, and not even just relevant, but still at the top of the game. Right. And, right. and I, I think that it's not really a hot take, but it's got, it, I don't think he gets enough credit for what he's done for AEW since dropping the title. 
Yeah. Because, I mean, absolutely 100%, his signing to AEW brought legitimacy to that company in a way that, you know, no no disrespect to Cody, the Young Bucks, Kenny Omega, or any of those you know, people from the elite, but that was a big deal. And it, it was the right choice at the time to put the, the belt on Jericho in order to establish legitimacy and, dare I say, pop culture relevancy in order to get mainstream attention. And then they've used him in a way to make new stars as opposed to keeping himself relevant so that two years later, he doesn't have to be on every show anymore. But yet everything that he contributes yeah. makes someone else better. And I, and I, I truly agree. respect and appreciate that about him. I agree with you, Tinfold. I think that there are two things that, that, that happened that created AEW. It was Cody Rhodes asking for his release and mm-hmm. doing his list, right, that really ignited this interest in what he was doing and um, ignited this interest in the independence and things like that. And then Jericho wrestling Kenny Omega in Japan. Mm-hmm. Without those two things happening, I don't think that you get the all-in show, which then uh, gives you AEW. Right. Right. You needed those things to happen. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm glad that they did because I'd sound so uh, cliche to say, but more competition, the better. The more sure. out- wrestling companies out there doing well, the better. It's great for more the guys boys. Have an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so no, I was just saying, I like AEW and I like WWE. And, and I don't think that you have to adhere to one or the other fan base. I think right. it's kind of like Star Wars, right? Star Wars is a very toxic online fan community. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you say you like The Last Jedi or The Rise of Skywalker, <laughs> you're not a real fan. People, yeah, they come after you, you know, which, by the way, you want a hot take. I like the sequel trilogy more than any other Star Wars thing ever. OK, I, I mean, I'm not a Star Wars guy. I'm not a star. I will, I will self admit, like, I'm not a deep in the mythology of Star Wars. But as far as going to see a movie and having fun, these last three, especially Force Awakens. I had so much fun watching. I enjoyed to watch them. They were pleasures to watch. Yeah. I might not have gotten all the things. I have no idea why The Last Jedi is so divisive. No one going to seem to explain it to me. But I like them. Now, um, I just relate that back to wrestling. It's kind of gotten to that level. There's like the original trilogy people, and there's this, the prequel people. There's the this, this sequel trilogy people, and then there are the TV people. And they're always battling all these factions. Yeah. I don't know if you know this about me, but I actually worked on the indies for five years a long time ago. And that's uh, one of the reasons why I got into AEW is because the product that they were presenting was reminiscent of what made me a fan of wrestling in the first place. Again, like you Mm -hmm. said, not everything they're doing is you know, 100%, you know, uh, uh, great or explicable or whatever. But, you know, you go back and you watch some of that Attitude Era stuff, you can say the exact same thing about that. A lot of that stuff sucked. Yeah, a lot of that, <laughs> a, a lot of people choose to misremember that kind of stuff. Yeah. Just, just yeah. like people choose to, I don't even want, I was going to make this a, a David Ortiz reference, but I don't want to go there. Big Poppy! I, lo- I love Big Poppy, but, you know... The, the the Hall of Fame announcement just recently came out and it's sparked this huge debate. I'm actually going to be talking about it in a future episode with a baseball analyst friend of mine. But let's jump to, since we're talking about movies, 
you recently also wrapped up season eight of the movie trivia show, a Schmodown, which we hadn't actually talked about the last time you were here on the show, but I am fascinated by this because I'm a, I'm a little bit of a cinephile myself. And I want to educate the people that are listening to this now about movie trivia Schmodown so that they can discover it for themselves. So like, can you give me a, a basic breakdown of what the show is about and how they can find it? Yeah, sure, man. You know, it's it's been a community that I've really enjoyed being a part of. We just had our big uh, year-end extravaganza in <laughs> Los Angeles, California. At Huge the Globe crowd. Theater in Hollywood. It was awesome. It was a great crowd. What it is, is it's essentially, it, it's essentially movie trivia, but not like bar trivia. It's like very intense competitive trivia. It's a real game with real players playing for real stakes but there's a pro wrestling element to it. There are storylines, there's good guys, there's bad guys, there's teams, there's factions, there's managers, but it's a real sport at the same time. It's kind of a hybrid of, of a game show, a wrestling show, and a sports league. And I fell into it a couple of years ago just as a fa- like a fan of the wrestling aspect of it. And when I saw it, because like the first time I saw the show, I... 100% got what they were going for and it clicked with me it resonated with me and um so i you know i've been a part of it now i don't know three or four years and it's a lot of fun man i really enjoy it um i, I get to host it most of the time and ask the questions and kind of administer the game and the, the things that these players know is next level the, the stuff that they pull, especially it, it blows the me division away. called the inner geekdom. Yeah, man. I mean, if you've watched it, you know, mm-hmm. they have crazy knowledge. These players, they just have crazy knowledge. And if you've seen it, if you've watched it, like you said, you, you had, mm-hmm. you, you saw that, right? They just yeah. have an intense knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been like the person, like people refer to me as IMDB Ian's movie database, because I have that kind of level of knowledge of almost useless <laughs> facts of when it comes to movies and TVs. And like, you know, this person was in this, but it was also written by this, who was producing this. And, and like, sometimes in my mind, I feel like, Oh, I'd be a really good contestant on that. And then like, I'll watch one and I'll be like, I would not survive the first round. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's intense. And I actually got to play, in a couple of games, they were exhibition. When the pandemic hit, uh, they had to do everything digitally and they just were trying to do games for fun, right? Mm-hmm. And so I got to compete in a Back to the Future, all Back to the Future Trivium one, and I got to do a James Bond one. And um, I had a lot of fun and I was surprised by what I knew and even more surprised by what I didn't know <laughs> uh, uh, about all those, about both franchises. But it was actually, since we're on the subject, it was actually that exhibition match that I had in the movie trivia Schmodown for James Bond that sparked the idea for the for the next book. You are so fantastic. I was literally going to compliment your ability to lob me a softball for a segue. <laughs> <laughs> because that was the main thing I wanted to talk to you about today was that you got a new book coming out. Well, I mean, as this airs, it'll be officially available tomorrow. But you got a new book coming out called Bond, James Bond in which you're dissecting the cinematic and story origin of this beloved character that spans six decades. So you're saying that this came about as a result of you doing James Bond Schmodown? Yeah. So I was doing a, a uh, exhibition match, and it was the four of us playing, or three of us playing, one of the two, I can't remember, 
anyway, we were having fun, and I, I think I ended up, I ended up getting my last question wrong, and I lost the game. But this guy I was playing against, his name was Mike Kalinowski, and I'd known him for about a couple of years, and we would always talk James Bond whenever we were together because I knew he was a fan, he knew I was a fan, so we would just talk shop about Bond, and I was just so on a high after that game for whatever reason about James Bond that I said, man, that would be a great follow-up to if I were to do another book, I would do it on James Bond. And um, that night I actually wrote a pitch to the publisher. Like I wrote out a pitch, I sent it in and for whatever, like I was, it was all in a fit of inspiration. And they said, okay, we're going to take a look at it. The next day I heard, you know, they emailed me and they're like, we're going to take a look at it. And it was like three days later. They're like, we would love for you to do this book. And I was like, oh, okay. Didn't think they would be that easy. <laughs> and and uh, so I called or I sent a message on Facebook to the guy, Mike Kalinowski. And I said, hey, man, I just got this green light to do a book about Bond. I would love if you did it with me. And so we got on a phone call, a couple of meetings. And this was all the way back in 2020, late 2020. And um, we got on the phone, got, did a couple of meetings, and then we kind of signed off on it and we started writing and the book was going to have all the James Bonds in it, all 26 movies officially slash one unofficial, 25 unofficial, one unofficial movies in it. And then the pandemic kept delaying no time to die. Mm -hmm. And it was going to be in February. Then it was going to be in April. Then it was going to be in August. And then it was finally November of 2021. And so we had to keep pushing the book back and I had a, I had a couple of exchanges with, cause there was a, you know, the publisher's like, do we really need no time to die? And they're like, yes, we need <laughs> all of them in there. We got to have everything. I don't want the book to be dated as soon as it comes out. Yeah. And they're gracious enough to be like, okay, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. So we just, you know, wrapped it up probably by the time we're doing this, we wrapped it up uh, about four months ago and finished it off. And man, I was really, really happy with, with, with how it turned out. It's, it's different from, the back from the future book in a way of 25 movies. I was going to say decades. How, yeah. how daunting of a task did you think that you were getting yourself into knowing that this is a much greater universe and much more source material in which you need to familiarize yourself with enough to write a book about it? Yeah, there was a lot more than I expected to be honest with you because with back to the future there's three movies and you can kind of learn the backstories of them. And there's a lot of information out there and it's all, you know, somewhat recent, you know, it's the eighties, mm -hmm. early nineties. So you, you can, there's a lot more accessible things. You, they, they were interviewed a lot for the films. There was a lot, just a lot more research material. Sure. So then when you do a thing about James Bond, which is books written in the fifties and mm -hmm. made in the sixties, starting with Sean Connery and 62's Dr. No, there's a lot of stuff. Each one of these movies could have an entire book written about it. Literally, each one of the movies could have a whole book about it. I believe that. And you have 25 official ones. You have Never Say Never Again, which was a Sean Connery Bond unofficial. And to try to figure out the best way to structure that and make it still digestible, pretty, it was pretty incredible pretty incredible process to try to do all that. And that's why I was so thankful to have a co-author this time, somebody who we could write together on. 
How was it different this time working with a co-author as opposed to the Back to From the Future book you wrote yourself? Oh man, it was it was a it was a much different process because I, I may have told you this when we talked last. I can't remember, but writing that Back to the Future book was so daunting. It was a lot of hours, a lot of research, a lot of sitting alone in your room, staring at your laptop screen, pushing start and play on behind the scenes featurettes on DVDs to make sure you got the quote right and rewinding. It was a lot, you know. And with this one having a collaborator because I'm just a collaborator by nature. So having Mm -hmm. one was so beneficial for me. And I think for the project, because you automatically have somebody who's at your level and fandom and knowledge of the subject material. And it just makes the whole process much more smoother. Once we figured out kind of, okay, you take care of this. I'll take care of this. You do that. I'll do this. Once we kind of figured that part out, it was very seamless. Would it be like, would you guys dive into both movies together or would like, would you take a few and then he would take a few? Well, so the, the great thing is, and this is something I wanted to make sure about is I wanted to be research driven, but part of what I loved about the back to the future book itself, back from the future was I had the ability to interject my own opinion, my own thoughts, my feelings and stories and connections I have with the films. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I did that with these. So there is not a single bond movie discussed in this book that I don't have an opinion on in the book. So at every single movie, there's a write up about this is what Brad thought of this movie, Ah. um, which I really enjoyed, but some of the research elements, he would just say he's going to do, a whole chapter on the video games of James Bond, which we have in there. I was going to ask um, about stuff, that because yeah, stuff about the video games. Goldeneye, of course, was yeah. its own phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I still, I just um, played that like two weeks ago. That uh, still hits, <laughs> still hits. So he, you know, he would cover that, and then there's a chapter which was really when I wrote the pitch for the publisher. This was the only chapter I even had outlined in its totality. And um, it's called the chapter in the book is called the Thunderball Trials, because there's a fascinating, fascinating story about Thunderball, the movie Thunderball and the behind the scenes of it and why there were several legal battles um, over this movie and really the origins of the story. Uh, This guy, Kevin McClory, who is the producer of Thunderball, he's the one who created some of the Bond villains, you know, like Blofeld. And he created Spectre, which was the terrorist organization in, the, in their Bond movies and novels. Those were his ideas because he had worked on a screenplay with Ian Fleming that they were going to try to produce before any Bond films were ever made. Hmm. They were working on this screenplay. And um, whenever the screenplay fell through, Ian Fleming was like, oh, I'll just turn this into the next Bond book. So just kind of, you know, essentially stole the characters that he had created <laughs> with this guy, Kevin McClory. And made Thunderball the book. So when they went to go make the movie, they actually had to. Uh, Kevin McClory before that, you know, filed lawsuits, injunctions, and the the uh, judge said you have the rights to these characters. So in order to get the Thunderball movie made, which was the fourth James Bond movie, and up till Skyfall, the highest grossing Bond movie of all time, up to 2013 Skyfall. In order to get it made, they had to cut a deal with this guy Kevin McClory in which he could remake 
James, the, the story of Thunderball, he had the rights to remake it every 10 years. Hmm. So his whole life's work was based around the screenplay that he had done with Ian Fleming. So anyway, there's a, I break all that down in the book because that was something that really interested me. So I would take something like that. Mike would talk about video games, and then we'd collab on the what we call the era chapters, the Sean Connery mm-hmm. era, the Roger Moore era, the George Lazenby era, um, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, Brosnan, all the way through mm-hmm. Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the subject of James Bond, everybody always has their preferences and and they'd love to debate like who was the best Bond. Do you have a favorite Bond? So that's another fun thing that we do in the book. And I, I, I don't mind revealing it, but we do have a chapter called The Dossier in which we rank all the Bond movies, you know, both of us. Here's Brad's list. Here's Mike's list. Here's our list of Bonds, who we think's best to worst. My list, Mike's list. Best songs, best Bond girls, gadgets, things like that. I do, I do think Sean Connery, without a shadow of a doubt, is the best James Bond ever. I think Daniel Craig is a close second. It's all, sometimes it's 1A, 1B. But there's something about Sean Connery. He was, this is a guy who got the role when he was 31 or 32 around then. He was a Mr. Universe at one point. He competed in Mr. Universe pa- uh, uh, competition, bodybuilder, and had this magnetism about him. I mean, he was masculine. He was a handsome dude by all standards. Women loved him. Men wanted to be like him. And he really set the tone for James Bond to where he could be the ultimate charmer and also be a cold-blooded murderer. Um, there's a scene in uh, Dr. No, the first Bond movie, where there's this uh, guy named uh, Dent. What's his last name? Professor Dent or something like that. Anyway, he tries to kill Bond in the middle of the night. So he sneaks into Bond's little bungalow, and Bond has like you know the pillow stacked up as a fake body, like we would do when we would try to sneak out of the house and trick our parents. You know the bo- <laughs> the pillows are underneath, the, you know, tucked in a very certain way to look mm-hmm. like we're sleeping. And um, and he sh- and so this guy shoots the pillows, boom, 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 right with his revolver. He thinks he kills Bond, and Bond flips the lights on. And uh, Sean Connery does, and they're they're talking, and he just has this great line in Doctor No, where Sean Connery's looking at this guy, and he says, "That's a Smith and Wesson, and you've had your six. and then just <laughs> boom, shoots him and kills him in cold blood. It was just so phenomenal that this guy could pull that off and then go charm Ursula Andress and sing to her, and and just smooth as peanut butter, man. Mm-hmm. So I think Sean Connery's definitely the best Bond. In my opinion. Do you think, I, I just thought of this question, because the the Bond films, since Connery started playing the role, and up until Daniel Craig, who, for what we know, is the last, it's his last time playing this role, do you think that throughout the evolution of the character that Sean Connery could pull off the same character as Daniel Craig did? Because, in like, in my opinion, I when, when you're looking at the two eras, I mean the evolution of the character has really changed and it also kind of changed the genre of the movies a little bit because the, the Daniel Craig ones, I mean, even though there's still a lot of action in the Sean Connery ones are way more action and suspense based, in my opinion, the Daniel Craig ones, which I think is what gives them continued appeal in the 21st century. But do you think that Sean Connery could pull off James Bond today if he was, you know, say 31 now? You know, it's interesting. 
It's an interesting question. Um, actually, to go along with this book, Mike and I are doing a companion podcast series. It's available right now, where we are breaking down every Bond movie as a, you know in a podcast form, just talking about our thoughts about it, things that we liked and didn't like, and whatever. And we were talking about on Her Majesty's Secret Service, okay, which is the um, six James Bond film, and it's the one that stars George Lazenby. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that. If you look at that story, it's very different from the first five Bond movies, and it's very more emotional. The tone is very different, and we have the same conversation. Could Sean Connery have pulled this off, this different kind of Bond? And what I think is absolutely because Sean Connery is an Academy Award-winning actor. He's more than just a handsome guy or a charismatic guy. He's different, and this is no disrespect to him, but he's different than The Rock or Vin Diesel. Do you know what I mean? Who just essentially play themselves in the movie. Mm -hmm. But we like – they're such a larger-than-life personality, and they've got so much charm and charisma that we just buy into it. Sean Connery, this guy won an Academy Award. He is a well-trained, well-versed actor. I think that he could have pulled off any kind of bond. He just had the material that was in front of him. Now, I couldn't say the same about someone like Roger Moore yeah, or Timothy Dalton. You know, I think that they had very different, distinct attributes and traits that made them work within their stories. But I think Connery could have pulled it off. Yeah, I do. Do, do you think that any of the movies were a swing and a miss? <laughs> yeah, I do. But, but Bond is like, to me, so I live in Texas. We're big on Mexican food in Texas, and I love chips and salsa. Okay, I, I swear I have a point to this. <laughs> there is—I've never had bad chips and salsa. I've had varying degrees of quality and taste and goodness, <laughs> but I've never had bad chips and salsa. It's the same thing with Bond. Yeah, there are Bonds that work better than others, but I still like them all. Yeah, there are some that I've missed for sure. The first Bond movie I ever saw in theaters was Die Another Day in 2002. And objectively speaking, I have a fond, I have a fondness for it because it was my first and mm-hmm. it's Pierce. And Pierce Brosnan was Bond when I was growing up. And whoever Bond is when you were growing up kind of is your Bond. Yeah, Pierce is mine. And Pierce is mine too. So I, I love Pierce Brosnan. And th- but that movie is not good. Like it's just not – it's not a great idea. Let's Let's have – a South Korean guy or North Korean guy, excuse me, who dies but then gets his plastic surgery done to look like this English diamond miner <laughs> who is building an ice castle uh, in the middle of the Arctic <laughs> and also a, a, a uh, satellite that can harness the power of the sun that then melts his ice castle, causing a tsunami where Bond has to kite surf the tsunami in order to get out of it and evade the Porsche that has rockets coming out of it being fired by the other Korean guy who now has diamonds in his face. You know, I mean, it doesn't really translate well on screen. Now, the best thing about that movie is Halle Berry, but she's normally my favorite thing about any movie she's in. Um, but yeah, there are varying degrees of, of, of is this a good Bond movie or a bad Bond movie, but I like them all. That one, though, to me is one that sticks out man with the golden gun is fun but no nah, it's not the best 
And then you have the creme de la creme. You have the Casino Royales and the, mm-hmm. the Goldfingers and movies like that that are just so pitch perfect on every level. You mentioned Halle Berry, and I was going to get to Bond Girls here in a second anyway, but is she your favorite Bond girl? She's not my favorite Bond girl, but she she is she is a favorite. The great thing about James Bond is even after submitting the final uh, uh, manuscript of this book, I went back and rewatched all the Bonds. And then I was watching last night, I was watching Live and Let Die. And I was like, damn, James Seymour is beautiful. <laughs> Holy crap. Why didn't she make my list? You know, <laughs> so uh, there are definitely varying degrees. I think that Ana de Armas in this most recent oh. one, No Time to Die, just drop dead gorgeous. I have such perfect. a crush on her. Who could? How could you not? First thing uh, I saw her in was Knock perfect. Knock with Keanu Reeves, and I've been following her anything she's done ever since. She's gorgeous, gorgeous, mm-hmm. and great in the role that she played. Absolutely. Um, I want to. I would like to see green. her get her own sa- her own standalone movie. Yeah, and that was actually the idea for Halle Berry initially. They were going to spin her off into her own franchise. Uh, it didn't happen, though. But uh, Anna de Armas, Eva Green, Ursula mm-hmm. Andress, any of these women. Uh, Diana Rigg, of course, who was in Our, On Her Majesty's Secret Service with George Lazenby. They're all fantastic. All of them. Um, Honor Blackman, who played the infamously named Pussy Galore. Mm-hmm, Pussy Galore. Uh, all of them have been real good. But, uh, but those are a few that come to my mind when I'm asked about Bond women. You mentioned uh, the the music too. Do you have a favorite that stands out? Because for me, Chris Cornell tops everything. Okay, that's an interesting choice. My favorite one is Carly Simon's Ooh, "Nobody a, Does It Better." The Spy Who Loved Me. That's a great uh, one. It's my favorite one. It's just my favorite one. I really like, obviously, Goldfinger, "Diamonds Are Forever," both mm-hmm. sang by Dame Shirley Bassey. The uh, Skyfall by Adele was really, really good. You know what? Uh, I I, le- I really like that one too. I would put that in my top five for sure. It had a it had a throwback to me of mm-hmm. what Bond was uh, back in the day. That's so what, that's that why one. I like the Cornell one too. I mean, I'm I'm a huge Cornell fan. I've loved everything he's ever done. Which is I, I have a bias, which is why he's my number one. But I but the feel of that song kind of made me feel like I was in a spy, you know, thriller movie. Right. Absolutely. So. Those are ones that come to mind, but you know, and again, there's been some misses, like the Madonna one isn't a favorite of mine. Yeah, I would agree um, with you there. But you know, it's again, it's like it's all personal preference. It's all personal preference. I actually talked to Chris Jericho and and about these songs, and he really likes the Madonna one. So you know, <laughs> interesting. I mean, it's all it's all you know, matter of preference. What you like and what you think is great versus what other people do. Yeah, because as we've been talking here, I I keep going back in my mind to this. I don't I don't want to name drop, but I got I had the privilege of having a conversation with Ben Burnley, the lead singer of Breaking Benjamin, and he's a huge oh, nice. Star Wars fanatic. Uh, and I remember when I did this meet and greet with him, one of the things I wanted to ask him, I, I think at the time, like The Last Jedi had just come out, and I asked him his opinion on it. And one of the things that he said to me that has kind of stuck with me and has been kind of my mentality of how I approach all things of this nature is that you don't have to play the comparison game. You can love every one of these things for what they are or what they're being presented to be. And you don't have to take Mm -hmm. them so seriously and just get the entertainment value that is trying to be presented to you. And that's why, regardless of whether or not one person thinks it's terrible or one person thinks it's great, in the end, they're all great. They're just not as great as the others. But if you don't play the comparison game, you'll find that you'll loved it a lot more than you thought you did. Absolutely, man. So 
that that's the great thing about James Bond. You know, you'll you'll find something you love every single time, and it always always is fun to revisit, man. And it's always great talking to you. And uh, I really do appreciate your time. I'm actually about to hop on the air right now with the man you talked about, Booker T. <laughs> and we have Alita waiting in the wings as our special guest tonight. Uh, but Ian, it's always a great time to talk to you. And if any of your listeners want to check out the book, it's bondjamesbondbook.com. That's bondjamesbondbook.com. You can find all the links and you can also find the podcast with Mike and I where we talk about all the James Bond movies, including a special interview with Mr. George Lazenby, um, who played James uh-huh. Bond in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. So you can check those out. Well, Brad, it's been great talking to you. I'd love, I'd love, I can't wait to see what you do next, and I wish you all the best. You're one of the good ones. Hey, I appreciate it, Ian. Anytime, my friend. I'm all just right. a message away. <laughs> I'm looking forward to our next one. All right, take care, brother. You too. Thanks again so much to Brad for being on the show today. It's, it's kind of crazy to think that he had to hop off this podcast with me because Booker T and Lita were waiting for him. But like I said, that dude is just always hustling, And I really appreciate him taking the time to talk to me about all the cool things that he's been doing that you can check out for yourself right now, like all of his podcasts, The Brad Gilmore Show, Back to the Future, The Podcast, The Hall of Fame Podcast with Booker T and Bond, James Bond, with Mike Kalinowski, all available right now where you're listening to this podcast. You can check out the movie trivia Schmodown, which is available on YouTube or by going to theschmodownlive.com. His book, Back from the Future, is available wherever books are sold, including his recent re-release in paperback, which has the bonus chapter that's made up of interviews from the creators and stars of the movie. And lastly, his new book, Bond, James Bond, is available to pre-order right now at Amazon, Target, or Barnes & Noble, or just go to bondjamesbondbook.com. All that info, including how to follow Brad, will be included in all the social media posts for this show, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow me at Ian Strong Words on any of those platforms, and you can find Brad from there. Don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe to this and all of Brad's podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Please leave me a rating if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking to do something to support the show, simply sharing my posts on social media at Ian Strong Words so that more people can discover the show for themselves is the best way to spread the strong words. So that'll do it for this episode of Strong Words with Ian Strong, but come back next week as my monthly special bonus episode will air a new volume of Shot Glass Diaries, which will be part one of a two-part breakdown of the week that I spent in Iceland a few years back. But in the meantime, as I say every episode, stay safe out there, spend a little time every day doing something that you love, and if you got something to say, keep your words strong. How strong? Ian Strong. Strong Words!